Hello there, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Military Medicine Broadcast, hosted by myself, Matt Kane, and James Coote. Now then, imagine yourself in the back of a Chinook, flying across hostile terrain. You've got dust in your eyes, you can't hear a thing, and you're trying to manage a complex trauma casualty. In this episode, we talk to the man who can make that a reality, from the comfort of a small room in the UK. Professor Bob Stone leads a team at the University of Birmingham, pushing the boundaries of virtual and mixed reality applications. With a background in psychology and ergonomics, Bob works in human factors at British Aerospace, where work with the European Space Agency and NASA led him to experience VR for the first time in the late 1980s. He cites one of the proudest moments in his career as developing a keyhole surgery VR trainer in the 1990s, which was later commercialised. A man who spends his Sundays working and puts his hair loss down to headset abuse, he is a true innovator. James went to visit him to find out more about the mixed reality Mert simulator he's been working on and hear what he believes the future holds for immersive reality in training and treatment. So I'm sure when listeners hear the terms virtual reality, mixed reality and augmented reality, they're, they're familiar with the terms, but they probably conjure up images of people playing games with headsets on. Um, mm. Can you give us a clear working definition of, of these terms? From my perspective, virtual reality is all about real-time human interaction with 3D databases. Now, that doesn't make any reference to graphics or headsets. It is a very generic definition. Mm. So, yes, we have 3D, predominantly visual worlds, with sound, potentially with haptics, potentially with, with olfactory or, or smell and other sensations where you're interacting inside a computer-generated world and, and, and there's, there's nothing else going on. With augmented reality, what we're trying to do is to use media, not just, not just virtual images, but, for example, 3D images, 2D images, symbology, video. We're using different kinds of media to make the end user more aware of what's going on in the real world. So we superimpose those things onto the real world to mm. make that real world more transparent, more informative. Mixed reality is similar, but markedly different. And with mixed reality, what we're trying to do is, by observing, for example, in training, uh, how individuals go on with their task, we try to select the best physical objects, the most important physical objects that they're interacting with, and then put them into a virtual context. So we're mixing the best of the real to make the virtual more believable. Similar to augmented reality, but not the same. And it seems like there's probably three main areas of utility for these technology in, in medicine. Uh, simulation training being one, augmenting someone's judgment in, in real time, or actually providing a treatment. Um, can you give us a bit of a roundup of maybe an example of, of each and, and where we're at in, in each of those fields? Simulation-based training, I think, is, is, is probably the, the, the most mature, although I'm a great believer. I think, I think healthcare generally is, is, is the biggest killer app. Mm. for VR, AR and MR going forward. I really do believe that. Now, if you look at simulation-based training, uh, for example, in the, in, the medical, in the medical domain, we, for example, were involved in looking at how you could use uh, simulation to train uh, surgeons who are being sent to Iraq and Afghanistan who may not have experience of trauma, mm. trauma surgery but would need to be trained into the what-ifs. So if you're presented with some, with some individual with a zone one neck uh, fragmentation wound what stages would you have to go through to actually save that guy's life within three or four minutes mm. so i think the kind of safety critical criticality aspects of virtual reality for training are quite important and our medical emergency response team trainer 
uh, is also a, a really good example of that. But we'll come on to that, I yes. assume, a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, in terms of augmenting decisions, yes, um, there are obviously areas where providing timely information to improve an individual's situational awareness, either on screen or on a headset, will actually show benefits of using VR or AR um, in medical settings, in, be that in a hospital or actually being on live, on, on live ops. Where I'm more concerned is where we see these examples, particularly on uh, social media, where yeah. we're, we're seeing blatant, blatant um, uses of computer-generated imagery to suggest that individuals are going into an operating theatre with Magic Leap, with HoloLens, yeah. seeing pieces of information superimposed upon a body, and that's influencing their judgement. Uh, that, that simply isn't happening. Okay. And treatment, yes, absolutely. Treat, treatment is, is an exciting area for us, mm. be that, uh, for example, a lot of the work done in the States looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, recreating instances that led up to an individual's response. Uh, we're looking into into other areas such as pain distraction. We're looking into using virtual reality for rehabilitation of both civilian and uh, military trauma um, trauma patients, mm. and even things like end of life and palliative care. Uh, there's there's, a, there's an awful lot of work going on about introducing people into peaceful, relaxing scenes of virtual nature mm. to help them sort of cope with with uh, the the challenges of being near the end of their life. So which area, which of those three areas do you think is the, going to be the most important over the next sort of five or ten years or so, and which one's the most overhyped? Well, you probably guess that the, 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 augmenting, or the augmenting surgeon decisions is probably going to be the most overhyped, although there are aspects where, for example, for telesurgery or, or telemedicine, where information displayed in a timely fashion, I believe, will actually make a bigger impact mm. than seeing somebody's spine or seeing somebody's cranial contents being displayed in a very fragile way. Simulation-based training, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, and particularly in mixed reality, particularly training uh, for pre-deployment, so exposing individuals what it's like to carry out trauma surgery in very, very hostile, very austere conditions, mm. under fire, uh, in flight, for example, at night time, in cases where you've got brownout dust coming into the back of a helicopter cabin. That's that Creating those experiences using the, the technology we have today, I think is going to make a major, major contribution. Let's move on a little bit to talking about specifically why they're of use of use to the military. Well, I think a lot to do a lot of this is to do with the way the military is is evolving. In that we're seeing obviously reductions in in manpower. We're seeing very complex, very capable uh, equipment coming into the armed forces. So exposing uh, exposing military personnel to uh, these pieces of equipment too early could result in significant damage and even more significant costs and a, and a loss of capability. And simulation has always been putting people into hazardous environments so they can try things out, flight simulation being an ideal example. But another example of, of, in, in terms of, of avoiding the cost impact of, of, of poor performance what might be the work we did, for example, for the cutlass bomb disposal mm. simulator. And I think... Yeah, having seen cutlass being used by trainees where they go in, they go through all the routine of deploying that nine axis, nine degree of freedom robot arm, they they disrupt the package, uh, they then forget that they've got a vehicle, a three, a six wheeled vehicle with an arm that's fully extended, they turn the vehicle around and then whiz off down the road at high speed when they have to put the brakes on, of course the vehicle topples. That's a million pounds worth of kit that then is now is, is not functional, has to be returned for expensive repair. 
So let's now focus in on on one of the simulation uh, applications that your your team are working on at the moment, uh, the MERT simulator. Um, so first of all, for those that that aren't aware, the listeners who aren't aware, what is MERT and, and why simulate it? MERT stands for Medical Emergency Response Team. The the young guys and gals who are sent out on various platforms. The, the, the popular one is the Chinook, Helic- Chinook helicopter, and their task is to do casualty evacuation at the point of, of injury and to carry out life-saving activities before they can get them back to a more comprehensive facility. Why a simulator? For two main reasons. Number one is to, is, is to exploit present-day technology to see whether or not the actual solution is, is, is effective and affordable. It's also, from a point of view of uh, actually trying to replace, or not so much replace, but um, add to the fact that there's only one or two of these physical mock-ups that these guys train in available on bases today. So you see, there's a £100,000 wooden mock-up at RAF Bryce Norton that's immovable and it's not particularly high fidelity. Mm. But of course, then with simulation, then being able to do pre-deployment training, so let's see what happens when you're under fire and bullets are coming through the Chinook or ricocheting off the back ramp or dust is coming in through the back ramp or there's uh, there's an engine failure or whatever. You know, let, let's give them the experience of doing their task, doing their job that they're training for, but in a, a as realistic a context as we can. And just so the listeners can really put themselves into these people's shoes, um, what does it look like when they walk into the, the simulator? What do they put on as their headsets? What does the surround look like? And, and what happens when they put the headset on? What's it look like? When you put the headset on, you see two things. A certain number of real physical objects. We go back to the definition of mixed reality earlier. So when you look down, you will see a reasonably realistic-looking injured mannequin on a stretcher. And when you look around, you'll be able to see things like Bergens or any other objects, particularly specific items of medical equipment that the um, the, the Merck teams take with them. So if you kneel down, the great thing with that is, of course, that you, when you move your hands, or if you look down, you can see your knees, you can see your feet, you mm. can see your real hands. But when you touch that mannequin, you touch the mannequin. When you look around, however, because we're using a, a blue screen enclosure, we're using... Very similar effects to what the weather presenters on BBC use. But you're seeing a real-time rendition of a Chinook helicopter with Mm. the world flying by outside and various mannequins performing other tasks on board. Mm. Brilliant. Okay. And so there's there's, there's a lot of high-fidelity sim suites around the country, and and it's not inconceivable that one could be made to just look like the back of a helicopter. So... What are the, is the biggest benefit of your mixed reality simulation training in the back of a, uh, in a blue screened back of a Chinook compared to a high fidelity simulator? I think the beauty of what we do is that we're, we're able to switch between different platforms. And I think this is quite important for the Merck project generally. It's okay. not just about a Chinook. At a press of a button, we can make that into a Royal Marines hovercraft or a Royal Marines landing craft or a massive land, a massive land vehicle. I think being able to change not just the physical enclosure, so we move around our big mm. blue inflatable boxes to create this, this, this feeling of confinement, but also to be able to change the platforms, change the external scenarios, make it daytime, make it nighttime, or from a single instructor screen is what this, is what this simulation is doing. Is, 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 is aiming for. So now let's look a little bit further into the future. What do you envisage a, a, a mixed reality simulation suite looking like in 2030? 
Well, I would hope by 2030, when I'll be long retired, of course, hopefully <laughs> still alive, but long retired, I would hope that we, we, we might start getting more towards much more sort of reconfigurable simulations, particularly for defence training, healthcare training, uh, for education as well, which I think is another seriously untapped untapped domain, without necessarily having to even have the, the inflatable enclosure we've got now. It has to become much more, much more adaptable. For, for, for the Mert in 2030, I would hope would be something you're carrying around in a briefcase, not carrying around this huge inflatable enclosure, okay. which, which does the job, but let's hope the technology does go in the right direction. What about haptics? Do you think they'll have a role in 2030 or not? Yeah, but with, with the term haptics, we're referring to the sensation of touch and force, mm. uh, and that includes things like gravity, that includes things like the, the restriction of movement caused by other physical objects. It also, it also includes things like texture. Um, some people like to include things like thermal sensations and, and all the kind of things that, are, that our fingers and different parts of our skin are really, really quite good at, at, at sensing, mainly because we've got so many multiple different senses in our mm. skin. Uh, and that's one of the big problems with current haptic feedback gloves. Uh, in terms of technologies, we have um, pneumatic technologies. So, so, for example, little little air pockets that will inflate with either air or fluid to give you some degree of pressure. You know, one of my claims to infamy is that I invented the world's first tactile feedback glove back in 1992. Uh, it never worked then. Oh, it, it, did, it did after fashion, and then it appeared on a British science, uh, science TV programme and then died, seriously. There are still gloves out there today that are using pneumatic or, or fluidic type tactors, for want of a description. Exoskeletons, so putting your hands into basically a robot. Mm. So the robot is covering your limbs or your hand or your arm rather than you, you actually controlling it. Um, again, very mechanical, very clunky. You see lovely images and videos on the web of people feeling... Little little three D foxes running across their hands and that it's it's, it's complete and utter nonsense. Um, so, so so haptics is a big challenge. Haptics yeah. is a big challenge, and it's a big challenge simply because of the physiology of of touch, the mm. physiology of force. Uh, and and I think we're we're many many years away from developing something that is both credible, simulates weight and gravity effectively without having to tie your hand to a physical structure in the real world. And is wearable enough not to clash with anything else? Mm. I think I think haptics is still quite a a, a big challenge, and we're, we're nowhere near solving it yet. And as we continue to increase fidelity as we go into the future, do you think that increasing fidelity always improves training outcomes, which no. is so critical to simulation? No, I, no, I, I don't. I mean, we, we we found this with the keyhole surgery simulator I mentioned earlier on. We tried for the highest fidelity possible, but it introduced so many artifacts that the surgeons literally walked over the door. We almost lost the contract because we were, we were trying to push all kinds of technology down their throat. You find this too when you, dare I say it, you, you collaborate with games companies. Games companies have, have sort of historically used um, something I call hyperfidelity, which is they introduce things into the simulation because they can, not because they wanted. So the interactive trauma trainer, which we, which we developed with a, with a games company uh, many years ago, they wanted to put things like flies coming into the, the, the casualty uh, handling tent and the flies landing on the casualty's chest. Well, why? And there's all kinds of crazy ideas like this because they can. So high fidelity it does not always provide you with the training outcomes you want. It can actually provide a distraction. Uh, and and the whole reason why the human factors work that I do exist is because we're trying to define what is appropriate fidelity. And appropriate fidelity is not necessarily something that looks, feels, smells, like the real world. 
So obviously, uh, earlier on, myself and Andrew went into the the um, Mert simulation. It's it's, ab- it's absolutely fantastic, and and it seemed very intuitive to me. Um, but I guess a lot of listeners will never have had any experience with these sort of things before. Um, how do you usually find people cope with 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 the, uh, the 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 system? Do they always find it intuitive or or not? In the main, they do. In the main, and again, this is due, this is due to the, the the mixed reality approach. I think if, if when we try to do this completely virtually, virtual casualty, virtual shooter, virtual everything else, yeah. virtual hands, people started getting disoriented. People started getting the, the the mismatch between where your virtual hands were and the casualty. That got very very annoying. Uh, it, it 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 wasn't as intuitive as we would have liked. Since we've adopted the pass through camera, where you've got not not zero latency, but minimal latency between your the, the 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 movement of your real hand, and the fact that when you reach out and touch something, you're touching it. Your hand's not disappearing into some obscure virtual object, which is so unbelievably frustrating. Yeah, I can't tell you. Then it's not so bad. We still have issues with the with the image sort of swirling a little bit. We still have issues with artifacts. I'm not saying it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and we still have issues in that three to five percent of the population will feel nauseous and disorientated when they put a headset on anyway there's nothing we can do about that mm. but in the main with this pass-through camera effect giving the the, the augmented and the, and, and, and the blending of the real and, and the virtual a lot better than when it was purely virtual and i think what leads on from that as well is a lot of our listeners will be probably thinking gosh is this is this not really really expensive and i guess um my question to you is, is it comparatively expensive to high-fidelity simulation or is it a, a lot more expensive? It's a lot cheaper. That's, really? It's a lot, lot cheaper. Uh, and, and if you look at the way in which the headsets are decreasing in price, you know, you're talking $300, $400 per headset now. Fine, I'd like to, to talk about, um, about social media um, because your, your posts on augmented, mixed and virtual reality dominate my LinkedIn feed and, and, and they're a dose of, of realism on fancy new uh, AR and VR and MR tech. Um, specifically, though, I'd be, be really interested to hear your views on social media as a platform for spreading medical innovation and why you adopt a fairly critical social media stance. Uh, and specifically, are you essentially stepping in as a form of peer review when people are publishing maybe footage of these innovations which perhaps isn't quite realistic? I think peer review is a bit strong. The reason I tend to be critical on social media uh, and LinkedIn in particular is because I get very frustrated at seeing not just things that have been done to death before and being claimed as being new but I also get very, very angry at things I know cannot be the case. And, and, and it's not just me. I mean, I, I get feed from my team as well. So when we see things like augmented reality being used in an operating theatre, you know, I know for a fact that that is a PR gimmick. I've had surgeons come to this office saying, you know, I've bought a HoloLens. I want to get some photographs of me using the HoloLens in an operating theatre. Have you got any 3D demos that you can loan us to make, to make it so? There's so much of this out there. And... Again, it's coming from it's coming from a human factors background where we've been going. I've been going for thirty two years. My team here has been going for best part of fifteen years plus. And the reason we keep on going is because when people ask us what is the art of the possible, we tell them. We tell them in black and white. And when mm. people come to us and say, "Oi, I've seen this on YouTube. I've seen this on LinkedIn. Can you give me some of that, please?" We we will turn them away and tell them this is what the technology is capable of. Warts and all you really must not believe what you see. I mean, 32 years of mental and physical scarring, 
course I'm going to be a bit jaundiced. <laughs> and if I upset people, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, not done, it's not done my team that much harm, to be honest. Brilliant. Well, that's an absolutely enlightening interview. Thank you very much for that. We end uh, each of the podcasts with a, with a bit of a light-hearted section called the <laughs> Quick Fire Five, where essentially I'll ask you five short questions uh, that you're only allowed to answer with one word or, or hyphenated word <laughs> answers. <laughs> one word. Are you ready? Yeah. Good stuff. So um, how long until augmented or mixed reality is routinely used in medical simulation training? Five to seven years. How long until augmented or mixed reality is routinely used during surgery? Five to seven years again. Really? Mm -hmm. And will it be help, hindrance or revolution? It will be a help. I don't think it'll be revolution. That was more than one word, sorry. <laughs> don't worry, that's fine. Um, and what's the biggest barrier to uptake of virtual reality in the treatment setting? Reasonable, believable, credible case studies that have met believable metrics that, okay. so people can adopt with confidence. Okay. Uh, and finally, what gives you more value? An hour a day on social media or the equivalent amount of time spent at a conference? Uh, the former, actually. Um, I tend not to go to virtual reality conferences anymore because it's so much same old, same old, and it, re it really is. Mm. Fantastic. How enlightened. Thanks so much for a fascinating interview and an absolutely phenomenal tour of your, your offices and workplace too. Guys, we hope you enjoyed this month's podcast. Please click subscribe if you haven't already to stay up to date with our latest content. Do also check out our Twitter at Podcast Medicine and Facebook for links to relevant content. Reflect on this episode for your CPD and send us any feedback you might have. See you next month.